sometimes when we uh, pray or go to a prayer meeting and they ask for matters of prayer, uh, people give matters quite readily at the time there are, there are pauses. Well, this, this evening I'd like to bring before you three matters for prayer. Three matters for prayer that should be constantly in our hearts and on our minds. Uh, we can get them from Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2 teaches us many things, but there are these, these three things that are most needed in the church today, as they've always been needed in the church. And the three things are that we need to pray for preachers, we need to pray for people, and we need to pray for power. Those are the, the three things that we need to be praying for. And Acts chapter 2 gives us a, a wonderful blueprint for our prayers and an idea of the expectation that we should have when we pray. So what should we be praying for? Well, we should be praying for, for preachers. This is 1 to 4. Let's look. The first thing we should pray for is that the preachers are close to God. Now, the apostles and the disciples were all in the upper room, and then they come down, and we're told, now, when the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. There was a, a group of believers, and there was the early church founders, the apostles, and they were all there with one accord in one place. They'd been told by the Lord Jesus Christ what to do, and they were doing it. They were told to wait until the promise had come, until the counsellor had come. And they were obedient. We are to pray for our preachers, for those that come and speak the counsel of God, for those that lead the church, that they should also be obedient, that they should be close to God and do the things that they're told to do. They were told to wait they were told to stay close to God, and they did. They were of one accord in one place. We're to pray that, that the preachers are of one accord, that they are united to the Lord Jesus Christ, that they are Christians, that the persons that come to preach to us are converted people. Here was Paul who stood before them, not a, a person who had denied Christ, but a person who had denied Christ and been forgiven and was in a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, a saved person. We are to pray for our preachers to be saved. It's, it's something, isn't it, for me to say that, but it's something that we should always be aware of. We should never assume. We should never assume anything. We should never assume that the people sitting next to us are believers. We should never assume that the preachers we get are believers. We're to pray that they are. We're to pray that God has worked in their lives and changed them. And we're to check and we're to test. But we're to pray also that they're walking with God. A person that isn't walking with God is of no use. God can use and does use broken vessels. I mean, he uses, praise be to him, sinners. He uses us, but he uses saved sinners. A person who is close to God is a person that delights in God and can be used by God to bring others to themselves and to him. And we must pray that the believers that we have preaching 
are believers who are close to God. We must pray these things. Now, when, they, when it was the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven. There is blessing. The, the old hymn, trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. Some of the words I'd say are probably dodgy, but those words are quite good. The closer we are to God, the better we are. Because God is our glorious saviour. And the closer we are to him, the better we are for ourselves and for others. That's, that's the first thing. We're to be close and obedient. Secondly, we're to pray for the preachers to be full of the Holy Spirit. A, a backsliding Christian is grieving the Spirit. The Spirit never leaves us because he has been sealed. He has been given to us. And that is a mark that we have the Spirit of God, that we are united to Christ. But those who do not walk as they should, they grieve the Spirit. And we're to pray that the preachers are full of the Holy Spirit. Because here from obedience, and then suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind. And it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and one sat on each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. The Lord Jesus Christ sent his disciples to be witnesses to the ends of the earth. And here, symbolically, we have the Holy Spirit on their heads as tongues of fire that they may be a burning and a shining light as he is the light of the world. We are to be little lights going out full of the Holy Spirit, just as the lampstand in the, the center of the tabernacle gave light because the oil was in there. So we are to be giving the light of Christ because the oil of the Holy Spirit is constantly renewing us and infusing us and giving us the energy. We are to pray that the Holy Spirit comes down on the preachers and is with them that we may be blessed. Then verse 14. What else are we to pray for the preachers? But Peter, standing up with the eleven, raised his voice and said to them, we're to pray that the preachers are bold, that they are brave, that they are clear in what they say. Here is Peter with the, the others, the twelve, and they're, they're there, and the disciples have all come down, and there's a, a kerfuffle, there's a commotion. They hear the, the people who are thronging this place, who have come in from all different places. They hear the word of God. They hear God glorified in their own languages, and they think, what on earth's going on here? This is strange, this is odd. And Peter, standing up with the eleven, there's a unity there. He's standing with them. They're standing with him. And he speaks, raising his voice, and said to them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my words. We're to pray that our preachers are bold. We're to pray that our preachers are brave. We're to pray that our preachers are clear in their message. It's not a mark of God that the message is indistinct. Because if there is an uncertain sound, who will muster 
for battle. If we don't hear the gospel explained clearly and simply and straightforwardly to us, how can anyone believe? If people preach in a language that no one understands, then no one can understand what it is that the message says. Here is Peter who is bold, who is brave, who is standing, who is supported by the eleven. You can see him in your mind's eye standing up and the eleven are standing behind him as a phalanx to defend him and to pray as he speaks. And there is Peter speaking clearly and plainly to the people. We're to pray for the preachers. But we're to pray for the message as well. Because the majority of this here from, from verse 14 all the way through to verse 39 is, is, is a great sermon. A great exposition of the Old Testament that is applicable and that is relevant. We're to pray that the message that is preached by the preacher is relevant. It's relevant to you. It's relevant to me. That we preach messages that are clear and relevant here is Peter addressing a situation. These people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is but the third hour of the day. He's getting their attention. He's explaining to them. He's answering a question that is in their mind that, that they're speaking about. He is dealing with the situation and he's bringing to them the message of the gospel. We want preachers who are relevant and scriptural. Look how much scripture we have here. He speaks and he quotes from, from Joel. He goes all the way through and there's lovely quotes there that, that are relevant. Then he speaks of David and then he applies what David says. You know, there, there are people that say that the Old Testament may speak of the, the death of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross in Isaiah chapter 53. It describes it so clearly. And, and in, in Psalm 21, the the psalm that Jesus quoted on the cross, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? There's a description there of him dying on the cross so clearly. And then the, the liberals, those who say they're Christians but don't believe the Bible and don't trust in Christ, they would tell us that there's nowhere in the Old Testament that really talks of a resurrection. And yet here is, is Paul boldly stating the resurrection. The, the main part of his sermon from verse 20, uh, 22 onwards is emphasizing the resurrection. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know. The message he preaches is of a, a person that lived in their midst, that had many witnesses. And these witnesses weren't just the apostles. They were the people around Jerusalem. He is in Jerusalem preaching, doing many signs and miracles. Him being delivered by the determined counsel and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death. This Jesus, whom God sent into the world, you have taken physically and put him up on a cross. An actual event that you know about. Whom God raised up, 
having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. Here is Peter preaching 40-odd days after of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. He's explaining it to them. He's saying, these things have happened. And then he goes straight to the Old Testament. Where in the Old Testament does it tell us that Jesus is going to be raised from the dead? We, we know that the Pharisees knew because they went to their leaders and they said, look, we, we need a guard around his tomb because they, they're going to say he's risen from the dead. They knew it said something in the scriptures of the Christ raising from the dead. The, the apostles themselves were dejected when Christ died. They thought that was the end. And when he raised, they were shocked. They were stunned. They had to see him. They had to touch him. They had to eat with him. For many days he was with them teaching and, and preaching and showing that he had indeed been risen from the dead. But they didn't believe the scriptures and they should have. And here Peter tells us. For David says concerning him. This is concerning Jesus. All David says here from this psalm that is quoted is about Jesus. I foresaw the Lord always before my face. For he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart rejoiced and my tongue was glad. Moreover my flesh will also rest in hope. Who is this Lord? He's talking about the Messiah. The promised one. He is at David's right hand. Because. Why? Why will his flesh also rest in hope? Because you will not leave my soul in Hades. Because David won't go to the place of death and be there forever. He will go to the place of death. His body will die. His spirit will go to God. But the body and the spirit will be reunited on the day of judgment. You will not. You will not leave my soul in Hades, the state of death. Why? Nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You have made known to me the ways of life. And you will make me full of joy in your presence. You see what David is saying there. David is saying that he has a hope in this world. He has a hope because Jesus Christ, or he didn't know he was called Jesus, but he knew he was the Christ. Because he knew that the Christ was going to die, but he was not going to suffer corruption. And then Peter makes it plain. Men and brethren, let me speak plainly to you of the patriarch David. He is both dead and buried, and you know where his tomb is. Therefore, being a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne, he, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. You see, David has talked about himself that he would not remain in Hades. And then he goes straight to the Christ. Neither will Christ remain in the state of death, but he will be raised up before his body sees corruption. Now, what does that mean? The Jews had a belief 
And their belief was that when somebody died, their spirit, their soul, would hover about the body for three days. And then after the third day, the spirit would go to God and the body would start corrupting. Do you see? When Lazarus, when Lazarus died or was sick, Jesus said, okay, that's all right, we shall go to him. And, and he went. But the body, by the time he'd got there, had started corrupting because he'd gone there after the third day. Behold, they say, don't roll the stone away. Behold, he stinketh, his body has started corrupting. He'd gone there after the third day. And now the Pharisees and scribes went to their leaders and said, we, we need to put a stone there, we need to put a guard there, we need to protect him because they say he's going to be raised on the third day. Why? Because of this psalm. You shall not allow your Holy One to see corruption. He was to rise on the third day according to the scripture. The day of resurrection. Now, what's that to do with our prayers? Well, our, our prayers are to be that the preachers preach the most important points of the gospel. They, they focus on the majors. And the majors are that there's a need that human beings are lost in this world and have a saviour waiting. There is a saviour provided because of our lostness. And not only that, but this saviour came into the world as a little baby, in time, in space, a historical person, a real person, a real man, bone of our bone and flesh of our flesh. And yet, this is God the Son, the God-man, the Saviour. And so when Thomas looks at him after the resurrection, he says, my Lord and my God. And this person was raised from the dead according to the scripture. And that's our message. That's the whole hope that we have, that this person really existed, that he really lived that he really suffered, that he really was crucified, and that he really on the third day rose again according to the scriptures. That is our message. That is our hope. The resurrection of the dead. And that we, because he has raised, we shall be raised also. You know, the, the scriptures talk about the church as, as a variety of things. It talks about us as a vine. It talks about us also as a, as a body. We are, are many members, but one body. There's a unity of the church throughout all ages. We are united. We are, we are joined to our head, the Lord Jesus Christ. Our head is in heaven. He is in heaven. He has been raised again bodily from the dead. And so therefore, we have a hope that will not disappoint us if he is raised as the first fruits so we who trust in him will be raised also and here is peter preaching to them 
saying that this has happened. Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and hear. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he says himself, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Peter says, when Jesus Christ went up to heaven bodily on the day of ascension, he entered the kingdom and his father said, Son, you have done well. Sit at my right hand till I make the nations a footstool. Your enemies, your footstool. And Christ sat at the right hand of God the Father. And that means he is the judge. He is the judge. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. We're, we're to pray for the preachers, for their, their own lives, and their walk with God. We're to pray especially for the message. We're to pray that the message they preach is, is full of scripture, full of truth, and, and hitting the right notes because it's, it's based on the most important things, the most important things of the gospel. I know I, I read books of, of various people and, and there was one chap who preached a sermon on a chair. Preached a sermon on a chair. Much better if he preached a sermon on the door. Jesus said, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. We must focus and we must pray that our preachers will preach the big things, the most important things, so that people that come in are under no illusion of where they are and know the way of salvation. It must be clear. It must be preached clearly. Now, that's the first point. I've gone a bit, bit awry Second, second point, we must pray for the people. That means we must pray for ourselves. That when we come in, that we are changed, as we've heard in the prayer, that God changes us. That we are, as, as John Piper and um, Tim Keller says, we're sanctified in the seats. That God affects us where we are. Now, where do we get that? Look at verse uh, 38. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. And immediately we're told, Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? We're to pray that the people are affected by the word. We're to pray that God makes his people willing in the day of his power. We're to pray that the people hear the word of God. That you prepare yourself for the word of God. You know, uh, uh, when you go for a meal, you prepare yourself, especially if you're going out. You, you look at what you wear, you, you organize yourself, and you get there. When you're at home and you're a little one, you're... Your, your mum or your dad says to you, are, are you ready? Have you washed your hands? Are you prepared? We as, as Christians, when we come to the house of God, have we washed our hands? Have we prayed to God and asked for forgiveness of sins? 
Have we made amends with our enemies? Have we forgiven those that despitefully use us? Are we coming into the service with the right heart, with the right attitude? Are we here to, to listen to the word of God? Christians must be selfish. You must be so selfish when it comes to the word of God. You must seek the word of God as a newborn babe seeks the milk, the pure milk of the word that you may grow. We're not to be a, a, a Christian who is generous with the word in, in the congregation when we're saying, oh, that word's for him, or oh, I wish she was here to hear this word. We're to take it to ourselves. We must be selfish. We must be feeding on the word of life that God gives us. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of them, what, what men and brethren shall we do? We must pray for the hearing, the hearing of the word of God. We must pray that people are, are attentive, that we are affected, that others are affected as well. We don't want the war, word to be like water off a duck's back. We want the word to go into us like a sponge and fill us up, that we may be changed. The people heard they were affected they also applied it to themselves Spurgeon when he was a little boy he wasn't converted and he he went to a, an Anglican school and in that Anglican school he made friends with a cook who was like him not an Anglican but a dissenter and they used to go to services in dissenting chapels and, and every now and again once in a while there'd be, be a preacher who was really off wondering if they were converted and, and Spurgeon when he walked home with a cook would say well I, I didn't get much from that sermon and the woman turned to him with wisdom and said well I did I said, how did you manage to get anything from that he said well I just put the word not in front of everything he said we are to be like that woman when it comes to the word of God, we're to be applying it to ourselves. What is the word saying to me? How can I apply it to my life? How can it change me? How can it affect me daily? Is it a promise I need to keep? Is it a command I, I need to do? Is it a word that I need to take in? Is it, is it a truth that I, I need to take seriously and understand? I must take these things in. We must be attentive. The people. And then, notice what we find with the people. Not only were they hearers, but verse 40, 41, 42, 43, 44. What happens? They were preached to. Be saved from this perverse generation. And they were. How do we know? Because they were gladly baptised. And they were added to the church. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. If there's ever a mark of a Christian, it's somebody who wants to learn what the Bible teaches. They want to read scripture. They want to understand the doctrines, the teachings of God. It is not a strange thing to them. It is the word of God. It's like a, a, a woman who opens a drawer when she's old. And there are all these letters from her beloved and she opens them and she reads them and she smiles they're wonderful to her because of the person who wrote it 
we uh, to be like that. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread and in prayers. Verse 44, all who believed were together and had all things common. They sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. This isn't communism. This is a, a, a Christian or Christian community looking at what's going on and not being materialistic and, and sharing what they've got and looking for a need and meeting it. These are Christians doing. Remember when Jesus said to the people, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do the things I say? And then James carries on his brother and says that we should be hearers of the word and doers. Not just hearers only, but doers of the word. And then he describes in the first chapter what a Christian is like. This is true religion. That a woman, a woman keeps herself unspotted from the world and does good deeds is a friend to the children who have no parents and the widows. That's true Christianity. There's holiness without which no man or woman will see the Lord. That's what we pray for ourselves. And then finally we have the power. We're to pray for the power. It's evident through the chapter that the Holy Spirit, the spirit of holiness, is a spirit of power to change and to alter people from the inside out, to apply the word of God. The word that he has authored, he applies. We're to pray for that, that when preachers preach, that it's not in word only, but that the Holy Spirit would be there also. We, we need to, to remember this, but we need again to remember the emphasis. The Holy Spirit is almost like the, the shy member of the Trinity. And I say that in reverence because he does not speak of himself. He speaks of the Lord Jesus Christ. He opens eyes that they may see the Christ. He filled the Christ. He worked through the Christ. He was always with the Christ. He never left him. He was a spirit of knowledge and of understanding. He was a spirit of truth and of wonder, a unity, a changer, a comforter, an advocate. He was always with the Son. And yet here he is given to the church forever. And we're to pray that the Holy Spirit, God the Spirit, would dwell with his people and come down when we meet and speak to us that the word will change us and it will no longer be as if a man is speaking in the pulpit, but it is God dealing with you one to one, individually. The Spirit added to the church those who would be saved. The focus the focus of the Spirit. If you're to catch a, a train into Aberystwyth and you're going in in the night or early in the morning when it's dark, 
you go along the main track and just as you turn the bend, you look to the right and you can see the National Library of Wales and you see it lit up and it looks lovely. It looks like some kind of fairy tale. No, I probably shouldn't say a fairy tale from the pulpit. It looks magical. That's worse. It looks wonderful as it is lit up. Now, you look and you think, what a wonderful building. How marvellous. You don't think of the spotlights. There are footlights underneath that are pointing up, shining on the National Library so we can see it and appreciate it. That's the work of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit does that. He shall take things of the Lord Jesus Christ and he shall testify and he shall point us to Christ. He shall open our eyes that we shall see Christ. He regenerates our hearts. He changes us. He takes away our heart of stone and gives us a heart of flesh. He cleans our minds that we may understand the things of God. He is the light that shines in the dark place that we may see the Lord Jesus Christ. And he illuminates the Christ that we may appreciate him. And we're to pray that the Lord Jesus Christ will be illuminated. And we're to pray for the Holy Spirit that he would open our eyes that we may see wondrous things out of his law. That we may see Christ Jesus. Now, finally, I find it, I didn't write it down, I took a photo of it. It was a, a preacher and he took over from Spurgeon in the tabernacle. Not immediately, but later. Archibald Brown. And this is what he said. The gospel is a fact, therefore tell it simply. It is a joyful fact, therefore tell it cheerfully. It is an entrusted fact, therefore tell it faithfully. It is a fact of infinite moment, therefore tell it earnestly. It is a fact about a person. Therefore, preach Christ. We're to pray for the preachers. We're to pray for the people. We're to pray for the power. We're to pray that the Lord Jesus Christ would be exalted. He is the saviour of the world.